0: back, everybody, to the Talking Sportsbooks podcast, which is brought to you this month in association with Vivid Content Marketing. Now, if you're looking to put together a new website, you need design and content advice, then do get in touch as they provide everything from branding to design, logos and overall creation. You can find them at vividimagination.com. Dot Studio and also Prime Podcast at PrimePodcast.co.uk, who can help you with every aspect of creating your perfect podcast. So, what's coming up this month? Well, initially, this podcast was going to include uh, two books, two authors, uh, Glyn Rhodes, Mark Turley, and Tristex, and talking about their respective new releases. However, uh, once the conversation got flowing, as you know it does, uh, we slightly overran by about an hour. But rather than edit and get rid of the conversation to fit into one podcast, I decided we'd have two because there were so many great stories in both of these books that it was a shame to get rid of any of them. So I'm not going to. Instead, coming up later in the week, Glyn Rhodes MBE will join me along with author Mark Turley to talk about Glyn's book, which is called Beyond Good and Evil. And looks at his life in boxing from growing up on a council estate in Sheffield and finding his way into Brendan Ingle's gym and onto his stable of fighters. We follow him through his career uh, and then a highly successful career as a trainer, coach and manager. But first today, author and journalist Tris Dixon joins me to look back at a story which is at times moving and inspiring, but ends ultimately with tragedy warrior is the story of matthew saad muhammad one of the greatest light heavyweight champions whose career ran from 1974 to 1992 Just before we start, just to remind you as we approach the 50th edition of this podcast that you can listen back to every previous episode now via the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of the main streaming providers. This is quite a moving story, and I think made more so by your friendship with with Matthew, which first appeared in your other uh, very, very good book called Road to Nowhere. And it's really hard to understand, even now, why his family did what they did. And I think for the first hundred pages or so, I kept, at the end of every page, just referring back, But how could they actually do what they did, which was, back in 1959, uh, his brother taking him out to, literally, he thought, play and run around on the streets. And he literally ran him down somewhere he'd never been and left him there. And even today, accepting the fact that this is 50, 60 years ago, it still seems a remarkably callous thing for any family to do, to literally a baby...
1: Yeah. And Matthew wasn't an only child, you know, obviously you mentioned the older brother there. So you, you, know, why him and why nobody else? And did the other, did the older brother then think, well, if I don't do it, maybe it's going to happen to me. That's what we're led to believe. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's a shocking thing. And I, I, it makes you wonder, you know, Matthew was only four or five at the time, but it makes you wonder if he ever really recovered from, from what happened to him. Uh, Obviously his, path was incredibly difficult thereafter uh, but then it smoothed out for a while before things came apart again as invariably they do in boxing but w- i spoke to matthew's ex-wife for the book uh, michelle and um she was with matthew at the height of his fame and it's funny one of the lines i should have used in the book but never did was matthew wasn't built, born with a silver spoon in his mouth he was a born with a, he was born with a foot up his butt which I think is fair, you know, he, he he had such a disastrous start, such a horrific start, you know, something that could easily start a, a Dickensian novel, you know, it was, it was horrific.
0: Mm. He was taken in, wasn't he, by a Portuguese family after the period with the orphanage, but then you look at things, he had a speech impediment, he got bullied a lot, he was beaten up a lot, and he had to toughen up.
1: Yes, I mean, he was a product of that environment. And it was, you know, um, it was a matter of he tried flight and flight didn't work. So he had to start to fight. And it was the only real option he had in Philadelphia at the time. And I think, you know, I've done a bit of research on Philadelphia gang life in the 70s. Some of it made the book, some of it didn't. And it was, a, I mean, during the 60s and 70s, and it was a horrendous landscape there. You know, really, um, in, in terms of the nitty gritty, there was um, the Italian mafia was starting to move in a little bit. The 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 black mafia was a real force at the time. There was, um, It was the, the emergence of cocaine and hard drugs were starting to be pushed by the mafia and different avenues. And so there were different gangs all the way up and down uh, all the different avenues in in South Philadelphia in particular, it was an extremely rough place. And, you know, if you weren't in a gang, then chances are that a gang would find you and and make you pay for not being part of the gang. And that was often the case for Matthew.
0: He got caught in a gang, didn't he? I mean, he ended up turning the tables and literally beating up all and sundry, joined a gang, then gets caught, then ends up in a juvenile detention center, causes riots all over the place. and. And that's where you you started to see coming out of there this uh, ability and more of an interest in boxing. I mean, you talk about him with his uh, hands wrapped in, or fists wrapped in bedsheets, punching mattresses and walls.
1: Yes, I mean, hey, I mean, great. That's great imagery. And that's not only something that Matthew would tell me about back in the day. I had that um, verified by a friend of his who was actually in one of the correctional facilities with him. They said they could hear Matthew Sort of heavy breathing and shadow boxing through the night, and they could hear him, um, as you say, sort of wrapping his hands in bed sheets so that he could punch the walls or or punch the mattress, whatever he chose to do, um, as he tried to basically learn to fight so that he knew he would have a trade to go to when when he came out of prison. I think obviously we're looking at very gritty stuff here, which is obviously important. But also there was this, there was a very positive experience where he started to look up to Muhammad Ali and what Muhammad Mm. Ali was doing and I think so obviously you know yes he was that guy trying to fight his way out but he also had this bright light and shining example in Muhammad Ali and he he was desperate to be like Ali and to you know you mentioned the, the speech impediment and even though Matthew had that speech impediment he was always trying to be a bit like an Ali in the way that he spoke and He had rhymes and poems later on in life and different things. So I think, yes, he was in a dark place, but he was following the light and the light was Ali in boxing.
0: Yeah, and his, his amateur career was quite short, wasn't it? Just 30-odd fights. But if he needed to, d- to draw any inspiration from around him, apart from Ali, I mean, Philadelphia, as you know, is is a huge fight town. Smoking Joe Joe Fraser, Bobby, Boogaloo, Watts, Willie Monroe, all of these big names at the time. He didn't wait long, did he, for his pro debut? I mean, funny enough, actually, it will be 50 years this January coming up that he made his pro debut.
1: Wow. Yes, and I mean, you mentioned those guys. I mean, he was in the gym with them. He was sharing rounds with the likes of Benny Briscoe, uh, and his education continued quickly. And like you said, Philadelphia was a fight hub. There were cards on most weeks. Um, there were numerous venues: the Blue Horizon, the Spectrum, uh, the Arena. It was a it was a hotbed, and Philadelphia fighters were not short of. Of action and in fact obviously one of his early fights i think his second fight was over in france where he went actually primarily yes. as a sparring partner with benny briscoe uh who was fighting tony mundine and matthew managed to get a fight on the undercard um so yeah he was he was he his education was very very hard you know to spar with a world middleweight contender like benny briscoe you're going to learn the hard way and but but it was an invaluable education and you know, obviously his his life had made him a tough guy anyway, but in terms of being tough for the ring, it's a different set of circumstances entirely, but he got toughened up in the Philadelphia gyms as well.
0: Uh, the fight that got him the, the recognition, uh, he'd had a loss to, to Wayne McG- McGee and he'd drawn the rematch and he's going to Milan uh, to fight parlo the Croatian, Olympic champion or former Olympic champion, who was unbeaten, who'd beaten Carrillo, the, the famous uh, Cuban in those uh, Olympics. Nobody uh, really gave him much of a hope, uh, did they?
1: No, well, he had a couple of, you know, he had this this crazy year, I think 1976, where he fought Parlov a couple of times, Parlov and, 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 yeah. and Marvin Camel on the road. And they would both go on to be world champions at light heavyweight and cruiserweight respectively and i think he fought four times that year and i think he fought them both twice um and he and he was fighting on the road and again we talk about toughening these guys up the experience you get from getting shafted on the road which is what happened to him a couple of times is invariable and and, you know it's 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 stuff that you know no one wants to go through it but it is character building it really is and obviously, to go over to to fight Parlov as you say in Milan, and um, and it, it's you can't put a price on that. They obviously bought Matthew over thinking, oh, well, there's this unknown Philadelphia kid. You know, he's he's lost as you mentioned to Wayne McGee, who was something of a journeyman on the East Coast, so he can't be he can't present much of a danger. And sure enough, he hands Parlov an unexpected loss, which is uh you know with hindsight, it's a it's a cracking career win for Matthew.
0: Yeah, because two months later, Parlov goes out and actually wins the European title, doesn't he? In Belgrade, in, in front of 30-odd thousand uh, people. But his first title vote, the uh, the NABF against uh, Marvin Johnson, a name that you'll see crop up throughout this book, uh, the, the Spectrum in Philadelphia, again, one of the, those famous venues... And at that time, there was a quote in the book, the most sensational fight in this venue's history. The TKO in uh, in round 12, Matthew wins uh, Johnson's first loss. It was the first of this series of epic encounters.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, um, it was an incredible fight. And I don't want to give away too much from the book, but... I mean one of the th- one of the great like there's a there's there's a couple of great lines about this I mean Nigel Collins who was a rookie ringside reporter at the time has gone on to have a Hall of Fame career as the editor of ring magazine and and writes for a number of top outlets um, he, he was ringside at the time and thought both might actually die because it was that savage and Russell Pelts who's now been promoting the game for 50 years uh, still will say it's the best fight the best fight he's ever seen with his own two eyes was a fight he promoted. And it was that fight, um, you know, for, for guys that have a century of experience between them to, to mark that out as the best fight they've seen um, speaks volumes. And, and it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's grainy, but you can see it on YouTube and it's just tremendous. I mean, there's a line in there, I think about another fight, but it kind of reminds me of this one. They were like Neanderthals throwing rocks at one another, you know, very little care for defense. (laughs) It was just the most primitive stuff. And Marvin was a great, great fighter. I mean, Marvin was a wonderful fighter. Um, He he would go on to become the first ever three-time world light heavyweight champion. And he was an Olympic bronze medalist as well. So he had real pedigree. Um, But yes, it was a sensational fight. And it was one of those where I remember watching it for the first time on VHS, some... 25 years ago and you know it was one of those where i wound it straight back and was watching that again i was like wow this is just non-stop action
0: two years later he gets the he gets the crack at the wbc light heavyweight title again uh it's it's johnson and th- their career's all intertwined don't it because he'd beaten parloff who'd actually held the uh held the title uh there's big money being thrown around now when you look at the sums back then 50, 100, 150, 200 grand. This is worth, this is like millions uh, today. But you talked about YouTube. And this is the thing with all of these, these great boxing books. You can go back and you can find uh, these on YouTube. And I went back and I saw the eighth right he had a thing about round eight didn't he i mean how many yeah. times in his career yaki lopez was another uh yeah. when round eight turned into something of a
1: war yeah i mean that this the, that second fight with yaki lopez was obviously sensational 1980s round of the year 1980s fight of the year and again yaki was i mean these guys were mentioning we'll, we'll say obviously it was a hotbed for the division at the time and i know i refer to that regularly throughout the book but it was a very special time for the 175 pound division you've literally had a top 10 that could be 20 names long it was phenomenal you know and sure these guys might not be household names but they are hall of famers and they were world champions you know we're looking at the likes of john conti eddie mustafa mohammed victor galindez marvin johnson matthew um mate parlov fonzel johnson murray sutherland james scott um, you could go on and on. There were just, there were just, there were danger, danger men everywhere. And there were scientific boxers. There were brawlers. There were well cultivated uh, former amateur stars. There were guys, you know, like Dwight Muhammad Kawa who came out of prison and you know had that rough and ready sort of rugged sawn off shotgun style fight. You know, a five foot five light heavyweight's unheard of, let alone a guy that could come and. Manhandle some of the other, some of the major players. um It was just an incredible division, an incredible time. But what set Matthew apart, as you alluded to, was this string of miraculous fights where he would come back from the brink. You know, against Marvin Johnson, he was hurt; he was badly cut. It looked like they might have to stop it because he was so badly beaten up. And then he stopped Marvin. It was basically that story on loop against Yaki Lopez and against Richie Cates. I mean, the Richie Cates fight is probably my go-to for the most dramatic fight of all time. And that was where he was the NABF champion. And I think at the end of round four, Matthew has put that face down and out, and he's basically brought back to his corner. So they, they pick he pitches face first, and it looks for all intents and purposes that he's out cold. The bell sounds. His corner somehow collect him off the canvas, take him back to the corner, somehow revive him. And at the end of the fifth round, the same thing happens to Richie Cates. Matthew plants Richie Cates, who's down and out, taken to his corner, revived, and he comes out for the sixth round. And Matthew puts him away. I mean, this stuff—it's—it's it's crazy. You might have pros who have one fight like that in this day and age, or two fights, or maybe three. But Matthew was nearly at double digits for this. It was incredible.
0: Kate Cates actually thought he'd won. He was—he was celebrating, jumping up and down in his corner that was at the end of that fourth round.
1: Yeah. I mean, who didn't, I mean, even Matthew thought at the time, you know, you know, from when he, he, well, he didn't realize that he'd even been down, but with hindsight, I remember speaking to about this fight. He's like, yeah, it looked like I was a goner. And it really did. Like he, he, it's never a good sign when a fighter falls face first anyway, but he literally fell like a statue toppling face first with his hands out in front of him. And, and it looked like it was all over. And, sure enough really that's when Matthew starts going to work
0: the the press were all leaping on to the life story around that time and uh, John Conte was was up next in a fight that was originally Monte Carlo, moved to Atlantic City and this is where you you, you see he's training at dear Lake with uh, Muhammad Ali who was still of course on the scene at that time he changed his name as well he was because right from the start of the book he he didn't actually know what his name was, so it was after the fight against Johnson that he changed his name to Matthew uh, Sard Muhammad.
1: Yes, I think you know. I think uh, you know. I, I remember mentioning this to Matthew before I'd ever read it anywhere. I remember we we talked about this because obviously he he was named Matthew Franklin he, by the by the nuns in the orphanage. They the the legend is they named him Matthew after one of the saints and franklin because he was actually eventually found wandering on the benjamin franklin parkway in philadelphia um when he was originally taken in and i said to matthew do you think they called you matthew because that's what you were trying to say through the speech impediment because we would later years find out years later find out that his first name was maxwell and he did think that he was trying to say maxwell but he couldn't say it because the impediment because he was so terrified of Everything that had happened and was happening around him, and uh, when he changed his name to Matthew Saad Mohammed, I think it was a, I think it was a brotherhood thing. I think he wanted to feel a part of something. He still, although he had the Santos family as his step family, as he referred to them, he wanted to belong. And I think, um, I think obviously there were a lot of fighters changing their names at the time. There was a lot of um, guys on the East Coast changing their names at the time, and he found this friendship with the likes of Bilal Muhammad, Akbar Muhammad, um, Mustafa Amin, the promoter Murad Muhammad. Uh, he was obviously friends with the fighter Eddie Gregory, who he'd fought on the way up, who changed his name to Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. And I think Matthew wanted to be part of something and feel like he belonged and feel like he was part of something. And and I think as much as anything else. Uh, religion included, it was the fact that Matthew wanted to belong because he never felt he had because he'd been abandoned as a kid. Uh,
0: Two great occasions with John Conte. I mean, everybody was saying at the time uh, that John Conte was was finished, which seemed a bit bizarre considering he was only 28 years of age. Did uh, Matthew look at this as uh, just a bit routine and was he surprised by the quality of the opposition that he found in Conte certainly in the first fight
1: I think he probably was uh, in that first fight and uh, although I think he I think the thing with John is yes he was only 28 but he was a what kind of a 28 was he because we knew he he loved a party you know he had this playboy (laughs) reputation and obviously that doesn't that doesn't count for longevity in boxing. Um, so, I mean, it turned out that first fight really was his last hurrah and it went to 15 rounds. And, and it was another, it was a Matthew epic where Matthew fell behind massively on points, was badly cut, controversially got the cut stitched up, which, which ended up in his cut man, taking a, a suspension uh, to stop the blood from flowing as much. And, and then Matthew did what Matthew did and, and Claude Started to claw the rounds back and managed to finish just ahead at the end of the fight, and um, it was very very close in terms of. I don't know if Matthew took John lightly or not. Um, I mean, one thing you can say is he didn't take him lightly in the rematch uh, because it was a far more, it was a far shorter and far more one sided affair, and he he basically bombed John out in the rematch.
0: That was the first stoppage for Conte, wasn't it? In thirty 38- eight previous fights and he you, you describe how he reacted afterwards he went a bit wild in the in the hotel
1: <laughs> yeah i mean john, john addressed this in his own uh autobiography i conti which came out decades ago now but um there's also a lot of uh the american press took great delight in in trying to shame john when really he, he'd unfortunately shamed himself with his antics in the hotel. But hey, it was a very humbling thing for John. I remember the, doing the research um, after the, after he was the gallant loser in the first fight. I think Diana Ross wanted to sit with John and console him and and spend some time with him and say, you know, you've done a good job and all the rest of it. And I think after Matthew firebombed him in the rematch, John saw Frank Sinatra, who'd been performing in Atlantic City across across from him in the bar and and sinatra was a great fight man right he he'd been a promoter yes yes, he was and and he'd been to numerous fights and would always be ringside until his dying day Uh, and his dad was a professional fighter as well and john said in a bit a bit wearily can can someone just go and get me to meet sinatra and sinatra wouldn't entertain him so it was a bit of a fall from grace and very sad for john um and I think obviously, people at the, at the time, the Americans made light of um, John doing himself no favors. But obviously, sadly, we would later learn that John had a very, very serious battle with alcoholism, which fortunately mm. he's been able to be on top of for, for more than three decades since. And he's become a fantastic after dinner speaker, doesn't take himself too seriously. Um, and uh,
0: he's a very funny yeah. guy, actually, he tells great stories. It's,
1: yeah, and hugely uh, dry as well. You know, it's all—he's so dry. It's almost like there's a time delay, but he's—he's he's fantastic.
0: <laughs> this is the era, isn't it, coming into the nineteen eighties of uh, super fights, and you got Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. You got uh, Michael Spinks, and there's constant talk about unifications and super fights worth hundreds and hundreds of of thousands of pounds. And there was no let-up as he went on the search of that. And as we said, he had that incredible uh, fight against uh, Yaki Lopez. There was a quote from Mike Katz I loved about that. He said, it made Duran Leonard look like a game of of marbles. It was almost like it was that fight in particular. That was Hangler-Hearns before Hangler-Hearns.
1: Yeah. And I mean, when you, you know, people, you can just isolate that round eight on YouTube. It's out there for public (laughs) consumption. And, you know, the, the the astonishing thing is, and we'll say this, you know, I'm sure people, you know, and I think there's a couple of lines about this in the book, you know, Matthew Saad Muhammad wouldn't happen today because half of his famous wins would have been stopped before the final bell where he's able to come back. And this is one of those fights where he's trapped on the ropes by Yaki Lopez, who, with very little exaggeration, let's go about 40 shots to Matthew's head and body. And he traps him on the rope. And any referee could have made a case for stopping it there and then. And Matthew knows he's getting hit to the extent where he can do nothing but laugh. And you see the white of his mouthpiece being shown because he's thinking, I can't get out of the way of this. I can't do anything. And then Lopez almost punches himself out. He momentarily... Locke drops his left hand through fatigue. Matthew, in a split second, loops over this right hand, catches Lopez, turns the tides, then starts to pull the pressure on Lopez for the remainder of the round. I mean, it's just, it's, it's you know, there, there was always this talk and I never got this, um, I never got this. I don't think it was actually ever the case. But I remember reading years ago that, you know, they, 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 uh, they they did some of the Rocky fight scenes based on Matthew's fights. I actually think that was a lie, but you could actually make the case for them seeing this stuff and putting it on the Hollywood screen because every fight was a sensation.
0: He actually auditioned, didn't he, for Rocky. I mean, you've got Frank Stallone putting a forward at the beginning of this book, but he, he went for the part of clubber lang for those of you to remember rocky three which which went in the end to mr t
1: yeah i mean what a great what a great sidebar that is for the book um yeah i mean matthew was you know matthew was a good looking guy he was built he looked the part and again you know we get different stories out of this you know some some said he didn't get the part because he wouldn't shave his head some said he didn't get the part because he didn't want to lose um he, there was that great line in the book where he said well can they at least make it a draw <laughs> which i think
0: <laughs> which i love which that. is
1: which is priceless um i think ultimately though and i think frank uh, i think frank stallone said this to me as well in another conversation you know once they saw mr t how could you not how could you not hire the guy he was born for that part right and everyone else including joe frazier and ernie shavers who went for it you know, it didn't matter who else went for it. Once they laid eyes on Mr. T, they had their man.
0: How did it affect him? I mean, again, you you knew him. Uh, you, you've spoken with him. you spent time with him. How did it affect him when eventually they did find his family, when he got that call from the lawyer?
1: He was after the answers. He got the answers. I don't think he was ever satisfied with them. Um... And it didn't change his life. Because
0: he still never got to meet his mother, did he? Because she died in yeah. 1966. Yeah,
1: and he didn't know his dad either. And I think he was, um, he'd skipped town, it's fair to say. Um, so yeah, he got the answers, but he didn't, it didn't give him, it didn't give him the closure that he wanted. Um, and it so it was, it was a strange and sad thing because obviously when he became famous, the whole thing became about his search for his identity the press were writing about it. He offered a reward, ten thousand dollars, to anyone who could help help him find his family. Um, and I think, in part, partly because of that reward, he then kind of never thought that anyone was going to be genuine that came forward, if they just came forward because they wanted the money on, on on offer. So I think he was he was always a little bit suspicious about people coming forward only if there was a reward on offer, anyway. Um, but yeah, I would say that's in terms of me writing the book, that's probably the saddest stuff is speaking to Michelle about that and how, how it really, you know, he'd looked so hard and and hoped so long that he was going to have this big family reunion and, you know, sit around the table at Thanksgiving and everything was going to be sunny and you know flowers and roses and all the rest of it. And it just wasn't that at all.
0: He was told, wasn't he, that they'd reached a point, this was one of his sisters, where they couldn't care for everybody. And his brother was told, take him out and lose him, or it's or it's you. And it was much of an effect that that obviously had on Matthew. Can you imagine his brother as well growing up with that on his mind or in the back of his mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something I've tried to think about uh, as I wrote the book. I was trying to think of it from Rodney's perspective a few times. Um, Yes, very, very difficult, very hard. Um, You know, how do you cope with that? How do you deal with that? Do you actually have to block it out? And then obviously when they're reunited, how does that make him feel, you know, to carry that guilt around with him? It's not a good situation for either sibling, really, is it?
0: Boxers seeing the end coming, very few ever do, do they? And the moment where it all turned for him, after he signed with Don King uh, against Dwight Braxton, that fight in December 1981, where he rocks up seven pounds overweight, didn't train, his diet had been wrong in the days, building up to it, and he suffers the stoppage, and that's it, basically. He literally never recovered from that.
1: No, it was, you know, it was one of those things, Tim, where people were saying, oh, he's going to run out of miracles. It will be the end of the line at some point. But no, but because he was able to fight back from the precipice every time, you know, p- people started to take it for granted that that was just the way it was going to be. And against Dwight. Braxton as he was at the time and you know there was a lot of politics going on he had wanted to do the deal with Don King they wanted to leave Murad Mohammed um and basically I think it was Matthew's future was staked on the outcome of the fight basically he was going to fight for his freedom to go to Don King if he won he was going to move to Don King and 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 have a huge fight with Michael Spinks for for millions of dollars even back then for millions of dollars um
0: but you surprised though that Don King seeing that on the eve of that fight that he's, he isn't quite right. And then he's insisting, literally on the day of the fight, that he's seven pounds overweight. And he's insisting that, you know, they won't change the weight. He's going to go out and lose it. I mean, it seems even now the most ridiculous decision to actually let him go out and try and shed the weight.
1: Yeah, I think... Matthew was obviously an extremely proud guy. He'd come in overweight, never seven pounds, but he'd come in overweight quite often in his career and had to lose two, three, four pounds max maybe. So it wasn't an unusual thing for him. But obviously seven pounds the morning of a fight is a dreadful thing to have to do, particularly with a guy like Dwight Braxton, who's going to make you fight fiercely for every minute of 15 rounds as it was back then. And also, you know, was Matthew's mind on the job? You know, there's a there's a good bit in there where a couple of the guys in the camp talk about where they're going tra- while they're training down in a training camp in Florida, and Matthews looking at Rolls Royces and ends up buying a Rolls Royce, and you know that costs you know the best part of two hundred thousand dollars, and you know he's he's clearly not mm. thinking as a hungry contender. Or he doesn't have that, you know. It's it's stereotypical now. He doesn't have that eye of the tiger any longer. He is uh, waking up, as Marvin Hagler would say, in silk pajamas, and he's lost that edge. And the man who has that edge is Dwight Braxton.
0: The the damel downward spiral, as we said, never recovered. Really, he had incredibly another nineteen fights right the way up to nineteen ninety two, and only won seven of them. His reputation was unraveling almost with every every fight even if he'd won it his marriage has failed he's ended up divorced and the final insult really was when he was made bankrupt and everything had to be sold off i mean he couldn't go any lower it seemed
1: i know yes i mean it's hard now no matthew to 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 really understand exactly how this was going you know you had a guy with a mansion in philadelphia a Rolls-Royce, a couple of cars out the front, a swimming pool, a couple of dogs, um, you know, making hundreds of thousands for his fights. Um, and then he thinks he's been paying his tax for years and he's not making much money anymore. We're talking now to towards the mid-80s. And he gets a tax bill through for, you know, one of his huge championship years, 1980 or 81, for a quarter of a million dollars, which he no longer has. And you can't. He, he there was no way he was making about thirty grand in fights a year by that point. So how are you going to make quarter of a million dollars? Um, yeah, and like you said, really the downward spiral is you know boxing's known for its stereotypes, right? The guys hit hit the hit the lottery and wind up badly, but there aren't many that have as bad a downward spiral as Matthew did. You know, after he lost the title, I mean. It's hard to think that he had a good year left in his life from nineteen eighty one eighty two so call it nineteen eighty two to two thousand and fourteen. Everything was an uphill struggle after that and it's a it's just incredibly sad, really, really sad because he was a nice guy, didn't deserve it. I think he was taken advantage of um, and and then of course, when the money's gone, where are your friends? where are the people that you need? Well, in his words, to me, I couldn't even find them.
0: You do chart that in the in the book. It, it was a tale of, at times, really extreme loneliness and despair. We do see people taking advantage of them. this guy Sharky who turns up. You know, other times you'd see former ring foes stepping in to help him. But he rarely had a place he could ever call home. And people began to notice the the health frailty as well. His motor skills, as you note, were, were in decline. But he's still a proud man. He was still, you know, you still talk about him with all these illnesses and everything else that's going against him, getting up every morning at 4.30 a.m. to go and work as a roofer.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I was living with him for part of this period at atlantic city which is why i've managed to get obviously so much detail <clears throat> and i was around sharky uh, and i was around all this period so i was uh i was a fly on the wall and it's you know it's, it's sad right so you know when i was speaking to matthew because obviously we were talking about writing this book together in 2001 and when i was interviewing him for the book we would go up to and include in the car we fight or Dwight Braxton fight. He would ch- later change his name. And then Matthew either didn't recall too much after that, which I understand. Obviously, with short term memory and ALS and CTE and the different things that he was probably suffering with by the time we became friends. Um, but he didn't like that decline. I think if he if if he was around today, and of course it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been possible but he would have wanted the book to have ended after the dwight braxton loss maybe after the rematch to lost to braxton because he was he was a proud man and he was embarrassed by what was happening but the thing was you know matthew's life is a cautionary tale and um and 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 matthew also you know and i'm sure we'll get there but matthew was still able to contribute and inspire people in his later years Mm -hmm. and even in his later years after he and I lost touch, right? We were in touch between about 2000, very much so 2000 to 2004 or five and then fleetingly maybe until about 2006, 2007. Um, but even after that, he was able to inspire and help many people. Um, but he wasn't happy with how his life had turned out. He did think it could and should have been different. Um, but like I said, in terms of even a hard Scrabble sport like boxing, his fall was was up there with with the very worst, and, it, and it's just incredibly sad.
0: And the end was was fairly quick, wasn't it? I mean, he died age fifty nine back in twenty fourteen. He was admitted into hospital with uh, what was called Lou Gehrig's disease, named after the baseball star who died at thirty six after head traumas, suffering head traumas. And it was a very emotional time. He was still his wife, his ex-wife was still very, very close to him, and there was a, a tearful f- farewell. But then you just think, what what else could possibly befall him, or w- w- what insult is there left for life to to throw at him? And then you see that he goes, he, he's buried without a headstone, you know, because there's no money there. He's in an unmarked grave for until somebody puts together whatever the equivalent of a GoFundMe was and they actually get money and a year later there, there is actually a, a headstone there. But it seems that the the problems that he had coming into life, that he never escaped them even in death.
1: Yeah, and obviously, you know, it's, it's exactly right what you say there, Tim, and it's John DeSanto from Philly Boxing History who's made it his job to go around and get headstones for the deceased Philly greats um, who have gone in unmarked graves and he's done a fantastic job and you know with we've with being still relatively fresh in the the, the public's consciousness in philly they managed to raise more than enough money in just a few weeks which is fantastic and obviously it was a nice headstone but as you say you you just think a guy who gave so so much of himself and and had such a bad hand he just deserved a better finale than than even than what he had and it, yeah just t- terrifically sad and you know, I remember when Michelle was telling me about their meeting at the, in the hospital as Matthew was on his deathbed and, you know, it was kind of, it was so sad and it was, you know, made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up um, because it was just, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah it was, I agree. It
1: was, it was movie style. It was a movie style scene. Um, again, another one from Matthew's extraordinary life. Um, and, it was it was it was something where I remember writing it when I transcribed transcribed the quote and I read it and read it and read it you know and it was equally powerful every time I sent it to my to my wife you know I screenshotted it I said look at this and and it was it was just an incredible moment that she shared there and it's funny you know I'm sure that you know they they as she said in the, in the book you know, she loved Matthew to his dying day and he probably loved her. It's just that the stars weren't aligned for them to make it work. And, and she talks about the struggles of, of what they endured together. Um, you know, th- very, very well. And, and, and in great detail in the book. Um, and you can see it was almost doomed to failure, uh, but not for want of their feelings for one another.
0: And the last point, Last um, point in this conversation. He was asked how he would like to be remembered. And his response was, I I quote, as a gentleman, a stand-up gentleman with a nice personality. Does that sum him up?
1: Yeah, and in general, the thing is as well, like it's not too much to ask is it it's not too much to ask you know when he's done so no. much and given so much and you know by the end of his life he was campaigning for the homelessness because he, he'd become homeless in philadelphia and he was trying to 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 yes give himself a better life but he was legitimately trying to help others and he was running this annual banquet <clears throat> and helping helping inspire and helping the the less fortunate people even less less fortunate than, than he'd become and he was very aware of that and I suppose the one thing that we've not mentioned is um, it sounds cliched, but anyone who knew Matthew will say that he had this most terrific smile. And I can't, you, you can't necessarily put it into words, but everyone who saw him and was touched by him will refer to this smile. And I will remember it until, until, well, until I, I no longer can. Um, hopefully until my dying day. But he never lost that. And even on those days when we were in atlantic city and and we were in the in you know we were trying to make it work, and you know we were talking about the book, and you know we spent so much time together, and he was on the roofs, and I was on the roofs helping him sometimes, even though I could see how t- tough things were and how things were testing him and how humbled he was in front of me, he still had that smile and you know it's just it's just it instantly transported him back to a, ty- a a happier time and i just hope that um i just hope that you know the, I, I i would hope the good outweighed the bad i fear it didn't
0: Well, that was Tris Dixon talking about his new book. It's called Warrior, and it is well worth your time. As I said earlier, it's a moving, inspiring, but ultimately tragic tale of a great champion, Matthew Saad Mohammed. And if you missed Tris Dixon on one of the earlier shows, then do go back and listen to Road to Nowhere, which was the title of an earlier book of uh, Tris's, which was his story traversing the USA, talking to some legendary champions from the 40s, 50s, 60s, right the way up to, I think Buster Douglas makes an appearance in there as well. Uh, You can listen to that as well as all of the other previous editions. Go to the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of the main streaming providers. So that brings us to a close today. But don't forget, we're going to be back in under a week's time with another boxing-related show. We're going to be talking to Glenn Rhodes at MBE, who will join me along with Mark Turley, the author to look back at Glenn's life. And his new book release is called Beyond Good and Evil. Some great tales, some great stories there. And uh, that is going to be available very soon. Uh, My thanks again to our sponsors, Vivid Content Marketing at vividimagination.studio and Prime Podcast at primepodcast.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And I look forward to welcoming you back on the next podcast. Until then, from me, Tim Cable, bye-bye for now.